Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 11th, 2018, and this is episode 2248 of the Survival Podcast, 2248. And it is a Tuesday, that means, I'm sorry, it's a Wednesday, that means it is time for an interview. And I have a guy named Daniel Miller with the Texas Nationalist Movement about to come on the line and talk about independence for Texas and the movement around it. And I'll be honest, when I got this um, request for an interview, I did do some research, maybe a little more than I usually do before I, I sent it on to Dorothy, because I wasn't sure. Uh, these various movements for Texas independence have uh, popped up over the years, and some of them have been really rational, sane, legitimate cases for why Texas might want to pursue other avenues in remaining a state within the United States and allowing the federal government to tell us what to do with our business here in the state of Texas. Other ones have been, well, fringe, idiocy, lunacy. Uh, some of them have been the worst of the right-wing sort of politics that are out there. And, and, it's been in, and, and then there's been other ones that have been in between. And so I didn't know which kind I was dealing with. Well, I got a good feeling about it when I took a look at their case and what they've been doing and how they've been working so far. And then when I actually got to conduct this interview, I was completely won over. Now, I'm not going to say that Texas should or should not secede from the union right now. Um I really am not one of these people that makes a knee-jerk reaction to something that's such a major undertaking. I do think it's a discussion worth having, uh, and it may be very well the best thing that the state of Texas can do. And you'll hear us during this interview get into some questions that people don't usually ask. And I think that's a good thing, because when people start talking about doing something like this, they kind of just are shooting from the hip a lot of times, and if you say something, okay, well... We have uh, military installations, for instance, uh, you know, in, in San Antonio, Texas. We have a military installation in Fort Hood, and uh, I think it's a clean area of Texas. Like, I mean, how, how, what do you do? Uh, how about the fact that I own property in another state? How, you know, how, does, how do we handle that? Uh, lots of questions that I think, you know, a lot of times we don't handle. Now, the interesting thing is there are answers Believe it or not, there's answers to this question. It's almost like nations that have been part of other nations have broken off in the past, and it's actually worked out okay. It, 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 I think this is going to be one of the. And if you're, you know, like, I'm from I'm from New Jersey, or I'm from New York, or I'm from Georgia, and it doesn't matter to me. We're not going to secede or whatever. You know, um, first of all, you'll 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 hear us talk about how maybe it's not secession, maybe it's. More of a affirmation of something that already basically is. Uh, maybe it's a, a change in state governmental structure. There's a lot of different options here, but I think you'll find this this conversation stimulating intellectually. No matter what your opinion about the subject is or where you're from in the world, and we'll get to all of that in just a moment. 
Before I bring Daniel on, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our two sponsors of the day for today's show. First up, I have Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals and the Survival Podcast go way back. Over seven years we've been working together. And the way I always describe it, people say, well, what is Western Botanicals? What's really there? If it's herbal and legal in the United States of America and you go to Western Botanicals, you'll find it. That, that's, that's how I describe this. And it will either be organically grown or wildcrafted. You won't be getting anything with any pesticides on it. And you can get prepared herbal medications. You can get prepared herbal supplements. You can get individual whole herbs. You can get things to make your own herbal things, like you can get uh, great beeswax to make herbal salves and things like that. You can get, you know, if you ever had one of those moments where you're sore and you use something like an icy hot and what have you, well, what does that is actually menthol crystals. That's that icy hot feel is what that is. They make a deep heat ointment that uses those and has some herbs in it that you know your icy hot and stuff like that doesn't have. Well, what if you wanted to make your own? You had your own ideas about what herbs you wanted to use and what ratios. They'll sell you everything you need to make your own, including the crystals, that are a little bit hard to find. Uh, completely legal and totally acceptable and safe, but, but a little bit hard to find. And if you need help picking stuff out, if you have trouble with an order or something like that, you call Western Botanicals, they're going to have somebody in Utah, not in New Delhi, answer the phone and help you out. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com. And for big savings, they have a program called their Discount Buyers Program, and or actually a premium membership is exactly what they call it. And uh, the way it works is you get 25% off everything they sell, which, you know, that will pay for itself if you use a lot of herbs really quick. Well, that's 50 bucks a year. It's $49, actually. 50 bucks a year. Uh, we'll round it up. And the deal is, if you are an MSB member, you get it for free for the first year, and if you want to keep it after that, you get it for half price. So they're a huge supporter of the show, huge supporter of the MSB, and they've got a really great product, and I love having somebody in the herbal world that I can confidently recommend with knowing they're not going to be selling you any snake oils. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Uh, next up today, um, we have... BulkAmmo.com, which has become my go-to source when I'm buying ammo, and you guessed it, bulk. Um, you know, there's times where you're thinking, I should pick up a few boxes of this or half case of that or something like that, and yeah, I'll go to the store when I get a chance. And, and the reality is you go to bulk ammo, pay less money, and within a couple of days your ammo's there before you ever left the house and before you're ever going to leave the house. Strong support of the show. They do a discount for MSB members. And remember, if you're not stocked up on ammo, all those fancy guns, yeah, they're overpriced clubs as soon as the ammo runs out. That's all they are. Gun can only do what a gun does if you got ammunition to put in it. You need ammunition to train. You need ammunition if you ever need to use that gun to defend your home or your, 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 your family. And if you want to put food on the table and use that gun to collect wild game, all of those things require ammunition. So check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, MSB members, don't forget to get your discount. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 146 A.D., and David Verne has the following for us at tspwiki.com. Preparing the air. Not the air, the hair, right? That means the next person in line for power. Preparing the air by David Verne. This year, Antonius married his daughter, Faustina, to Marcus Aurelius, to fulfill his deal with, this, with the former emperor, Hadrian, to adopt Marcus as their heir. Antonius also grants Marcus Imperium Proconsular Marius. This was a part of Roman law that gave power over the provinces and over the provincial governors. 
Marcus, who was 25 at the time, ended his formal education at this time, which if you remember, that means that he no longer got his ass beat for not learning his messages, his lessons properly. Okay, That's how Roman education works. So he ends his formal education at this time and began to take up some of the burdens of rulership and learn how to run the empire. It was also at this time that he began to study Stoic philosophy. My take by David Verne. During this period of the empire, imperial succession wasn't as clear-cut as one emperor dying and their heir immediately inheriting all titles and powers. By the time the emperor died, his heir would have been granted power to the point where the heir was emperor in all but name. This allowed the heir to take on most of the daily tasks as the emperor aged and led to a smooth transition of power. This was the ideal system and had worked almost unfailingly for a streak of four emperors but it wouldn't last forever. It also would allow something like, imagine a Caligula, right? Oh, craziness that went there. Yeah. And, and, and when a guy starts going nuts and the old man's still around, he could put a stop to it. So, so it, was, it was a better system. I think it's the important thing to understand. It worked. That doesn't mean it was good. That means it worked. And, and I think one of the problems we have with government and the state in arguing our cases is say, well, that won't work. That won't work. In the words of my friend Vin Armani, every, every major form of statism that's ever been implemented, quote-unquote, worked in some way, shape, or form. And just because something works doesn't mean we can't do better. I think that fits in really well with our discussion today, so I'll leave it at that. And remind you, before I bring our special guest on, just real quick, you can help support this show by joining the Members Support Brigade. Guys, there's no way I could do this show without that. I think some some of you guys are like, oh, he's yeah, he's successful now. The truth is, the member support brigade is the way that you make sure that this show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. The other big thing about MSB is you can get your money back with it. I got enough discounts in there; it will pay for itself. Give it a shot. If you're not sure, you know you can join monthly for five bucks a month. So give it a shot at five bucks a month. See if you like it. If you do, cancel your monthly and switch over to annual and save some money. Uh, but check it out today. Just go by the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. With that, let me introduce our special guest today. His name is Daniel Miller. He's the president of the Texas Nationalist Movement and has been an outspoken advocate for Texas independence since 1996. He joins us to talk about that today on the Survival Podcast. And with that, hey, Daniel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. We have you on to talk today about Texas independence, specifically uh, as it pertains to the Texas nationalist movement. Uh, before we dig into that, how, how, does a, how does a guy like you end up you know, involved in something like this? Like, let's go to your high school. There's some pretty-looking girl down the row from you, and you're trying to figure out if you want to ask her out or how you're going to get out of study hall or whatever, and you go on to your life after you leave school finally. Coming from there, like, how do you end up where you are today? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You'd be surprised at how often people kind of look at me and raise the Spock eyebrow and, and wonder how this happens. Uh, but but here's here's what it boils down to. Like, I'm a sixth-generation Texan, uh, and I was I was raised in Texas, uh, born here, uh, up in Northeast Texas. And, you know, my, I always, when I, when I talk about how I got here, I always look back to sort of my upbringing. And I, and I say almost half jokingly, but I guess not really that, uh, everything I, I needed to know about our interactions with the federal government, I learned from watching their interactions with my parents. Uh, 
And I was raised by older parents, right? Dad was born in 32. Mom was born in 28. And they were blue collar all their lives. Dad served in Korea. He was an iron worker for 35 years. Mom always was in the, in the secretarial kind of field. You know, we, we made enough to get by, but really never enough to get ahead. <clears throat> but, you know, the, the thing that I, I, I can always say about my parents is it was never one of those, uh, one of those families where, uh, they sit around and they gripe about what's on TV and then just that's the extent of it. You know, I can remember as a kid going out and putting up political signs with my dad. So, you know, as I, as I got older, I became an adult. I, I sort of followed in those footsteps. You know, I, I did the political route. Man, I was dyed in the wool, red, white, and blue, but always with the understanding in my head that I was a Texan first. And, you know, look, we, we chased around congressmen. You know, showing their voting records. I mean, we, we railed against, uh, you know, the Clinton encroachments on the Second Amendment. I mean, there was just, there was a, a lot going on back then. But one of the things that I always kept coming back to was that, that image of, of how the government, the federal government treated my parents and, and how they always did what they were supposed to do, but nothing ever really got better. And so, uh, man, I was at, I was at a real kind of a, a low point. Uh, by the time I was in my early twenties, you know, I'd been just for a few years going out there and, and railing against these guys. And, uh, by the time it was all, all said and done, you know, I was, I was about ready to throw in the towel and, um, you know, it's kind of like a Jackson Brown song running on empty, you know, it's kind of, that's where I was. And, uh, at least uh, it's a good song. At least it is a good <laughs> song. Right. And it's weird to invoke Jackson Brown and a conversation about Texas, but, but, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that two, two things really kind of happened. Number one was, uh, I was given a challenge by a couple of brothers that I met up in Longview, Texas, and they handed me a copy of the U.S. Constitution, copy of the Communist Manifesto, and they said, hey, go home and read these, and you tell us which one you think the government looks more like now. <clears throat> and, uh, well, that was an eye opener, especially for a Cold War kid. You know, having to drive home with a copy of the Communist Manifesto in the uh, in the car was kind of like being a heroin mule. Um, but the <laughs> you know the at the end of it, you know, it, it was the the second thing that really happened that opened my eyes was when the idea was pitched to me that look, Texas has a different path. You know, there's something we could do that would take care of essentially all of these grievances and, and get a, give us an opportunity to preserve the principles of liberty, freedom, limited government, the things that, that we were railing against the federal government with. And, and so August 24th, 1996 was the day that I made the decision to advocate for Texas becoming an independent nation. And I haven't stopped since. So you used a term there that, uh, has been going around and been used different ways. We've had Brexit. Uh, now they're calling something called Cal exit because California wants to leave and God bless them. Just you know, I'll 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 get a blue ribbon for him to cut on the way out. I, that, that's okay with me too. Uh, but you use the term Texit. What does that come to mean here for people? What is what is Texit all about? Well, I'll tell you. The first time that we used it, it meant absolutely nothing <laughs> to people here. You know, they always love to refer to it as Texas independence or you know the the vile S word secession, right? Yeah. The one that causes progressives to spit on the ground and run the other way. Um, but you know, when, when that term was first coined, it was during the Greek Euro crisis, you know, when Greece was, um, you know, there was a whole story and I mean, I'm not going to eat up the podcast by all of that, but, but some of the economists 
that were commenting on Greece potentially exiting the Eurozone talked about <clears throat> how it was a Grexit. And so, you know, we're all sitting around doing our Texas independence advocacy, and we said, wait a minute, you know, we have an X in our name. This seems pretty familiar. And, of course, no one knew anything about it, but we used it a, a little bit off and on. But it wasn't until until the U.K. began its major push to leave the European Union that all of a sudden Brexit became a thing in the popular consciousness. And then, you know, obviously Texas was right on its heels. Okay, and uh, you wrote a book about all this. Can you tell people a little bit about that book and why you wrote it? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I could I could half-heartedly say that I wrote it because I got tired of answering the same questions over and over, <laughs> but that, that would make for a short interview, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you, here's what it really boils down to is that, you know, one of the things that I've observed over the last 20-plus years is that, the the debate over Texas' relationship within the union has been reduced to this sort of ridiculous punch and Judy show, you know, where <laughs> where you've got the federal government does something that Texans find heinous, okay, whatever it is, and and it causes a reaction, and so the 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 first reaction that you get is Texans slapping secede stickers on the back of their truck, right? Then the media pops up and says, hey, you know, there's a a petition or a record number of Texans wanting to leave the union or, you know, whatever it is the media does. And, and so they, to justify that, that, you know, to kind of tamp it down, they drag out some third rate adjunct professor from Bug Tussle Community College to declare to every one of us <laughs> that we can't do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's where it ends. You know, the media has drug out this, this so-called academic who has made this <laughs> pronouncement. I'm sorry. Hold up. Bug Tussle Community College. I I'm going to tell you right now, that's going on a t-shirt. I'm going to rip <laughs> you off on it, but I'm going to do it honestly and tell you it's going to happen. You can go back to what you were saying, but I, Bug Tussle Community College. That's well, you know, we, if we're going to do that, we got to figure out what the mascot's going to be. And I, I've got to figure out how we can caricature Jeth, uh, Jethro Bodine to put on there. But, but you know, that's, that's where the debate has been. And so, it, you know, you, you see these, it, it's very cyclical in the, I guess, in the public sphere if you're looking at it superficially. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book that, first of all, clearly articulated why it is that Texans support leaving the union, how it is that how the support for this has grown really under the surface, uh, and, and take a practical look at, at how it could happen. And then I, I guess sort of a, a, a follow up to that would be to present it in a way so that people in other states, although the book looks at it through the lens of Texas, could understand how the the principles and the actions and the things that are going on here in Texas apply to them in their states to perhaps spur some conversation on this issue. Gotcha. So how much support is there for this? Because this is one of these things that I found when a subject comes up in Texas, a lot of people seem like open to it. And a lot of times people seem really gun ho about it. And then sometimes, well, if you, Take it to the level of, well, actually doing something. It maybe wanes a little bit. Because you, I think maybe for some people, like, there's a lot of things that sound good. But when some of the reality starts hitting them about what you're actually talking about, maybe, yeah, I don't really know about that. Let me wave my stars and stripes and, 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 and chant America or something like that. So <laughs> how much, 
how much support really is there for this? Well, I'll tell you, and before I get to the support, I want to address what you just talked about, about sort of the, the reticence and reluctance that, that people have. And, and a lot of that has been because the the opposition, you know, those uh, alleged academics and, and mainstream media have done a, a very good job of convincing Texas people of, of really two things. Number one, that they are alone. You know, that, that it's mm-hmm. a very small number of people who support it. And number two, that it, it is so absolutely difficult that it just can't be done. So, yeah, I, I address those two things in the book, but to, to your point about how much support there is, I, I can tell you right now <clears throat> that when I started back in 1996 advocating for this, uh, support for this issue was in the single digits. Okay. The, the percentage of, of people in Texas that supported Texas actually leaving the union was in single digits. Now, to our credit, uh, it still polled higher than the United States Congress ever has. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the popular, those guys' popularity polls somewhere between, you know, more market office torture and Harvey Weinstein's tender profile. Okay, so, you know, the, the the United States Congress is just, you know, anyway, we, we've always been more popular than the United States Congress. And honestly, that's not hard. But w- one of the things that, that we began to see, especially when the T&M formed in 2005 and, and began to actually go out and, and politically advocate for this and dispel a lot of that fear mongering, uh, you know, one of the things that we saw was a noticeable increase in that in third party polling. So in 2009, remember after Rick Perry spoke at that Tea Party event, someone shouted out secede and then the media was all over him about it. Research 2000 conducted a poll and what they asked was not a question of political will, but sort of a what I like to call a fantasy football question, which is, do you think that Texas would be better off as an independent nation? <clears throat> and, and what floored those guys was that you had 48% of Republicans, 40% of independent voters, and 15% of Democrats. Remember, these guys just elected Barack Obama at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had that, that number of people that believed that Texas would be better off as an independent nation. So you fast forward to 2014, just to give you a barometer. You fast forward to 2014, right around the time Scotland was voting to, on whether or not they wanted to leave the UK. So, you know, as these things around the world often do, it sort of jumps up and bites the mainstream media. It's like they have no idea what else is going on, you know, besides whatever kind of thing they're fixated on today. But they decided to poll this this issue uh, in all states. Uh, and so what you had was <clears throat> this Reuters poll that came out. And in the poll, when we were able to get a hold of the data and drill down the numbers in Texas, what we found was that it was 54% 54% of Republicans, half of independent voters, and 35% of Democrats. Now, why this is interesting is is that the two questions were completely different, right? The first question was, do you think Texas would be better off? But the question in the Reuters poll was this, Jack. It was, do you believe that your state should leave the union and become an independent country? And, I mean, those are two vastly different questions. Correct. One, is a statement of how do I feel about this? Do I think it would be better off? And the other one is an actual question about political will. So, you know, from over the last 20 years, I mean, we've seen this this continued trajectory of a growth of support. Typically now, if we're polling and we have to we do a lot of internal polling in the T&M, but what we what we find is 
that the the trajectory is upward. And if we were to go to a vote today, the leave side would be anywhere from four to six points ahead of the remain side. And with about a 10 to 12 percentage points of undecided that really we have to fight over to make a majority. So you're saying that right now, by the polling, if we just put a, a, a measure on the ballot that went out in our next election, uh, let's say especially if we did it during a uh, presidential election year when more people show up, which would be ironic for this, right, <laughs> that that right now you're, you, you, the, the, the movement to leave would be considered a It'd be considered a toss-up because of that middle, but it would be leans leans uh, to leave the union. That, that's right. what you say. If if real clear politics did an amalgamation, that's kind of where they'd come down on leans leans Texas. Right, right. And of course, you know, just like we found out with with Brexit, you know, with the polling during Brexit. I mean, there were only really two polling companies that got it right. There was a, a poll that was commissioned by. Uh, the leave.eu campaign, uh, that, that actually called the Brexit vote. And, you know, they, they, they did it by sampling an enormous number of voters on the issue. And I mean, they, they knew ahead of time that they were probably going to win the thing. So, you know, I, I think if we're looking at it from a support standpoint, I, I think we've already got a, a populace that sort of leans this way. Now you throw in there, Kind of what, you know, some of what I talk about in the book is when you begin to, when you actually put this measure on the ballot and you have a fixed date, something rather magical happens. And that is people, because they have a fixed point where they're going to have to make a decision that has legitimate political consequences for our future, there, there's a, a lot of things that happen. People begin to seriously examine this issue. Uh, they look at it up one side, down the other. I mean, there is, it, it enters into the, the public sphere and people begin to debate it in, in a very serious manner. And so what we know is, is that even though we lean leave right now, that when we get into, into the, the period of, of, you know, we put it on the ballot and we get into a period of actual public discussion and debate leading into a referendum, uh, one of the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the, our side, the Texas side, can make the case, <clears throat> first off, how Texas would be better off as an independent self-governing nation state, but more importantly, how Texans individually would be better off if Texas were an independent self-governing nation state. And the one thing that we have seen time and time again is that those guys that are on the opposite side of this who are, you know, federal you know, worshipers of the federal system, uh, they really don't have any selling point. You know, we, we switched a long time ago from being on the defensive on this issue to flipping the, the script on these guys and beginning to ask them if Texas were an independent nation right now and the federal government were to come calling to sell us to join the union, what would that selling point be? <laughs> you know, would it be the $21 trillion worth of debt? I mean, would it be the fact that um, you know, they, they've stolen about 85% of our take-home pay uh, because of federal overregulation, not to mention taxes. Uh, you know, is it, it – I mean, are those their selling points? Because honestly, Jack, I'm not seeing it. Okay. So let me throw one at you kind of out of left field and understand I'm being devil's advocate here. Whenever this type of thing comes up, people always try to take this back to 1860s and the Civil War, and uh, they were traitors, right? And that's a, and it's just treason. Uh, that's one of the 
one of the things, especially that comes out of the progressive left, but ironically out of some of the, uh, the, 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 the quite you know, patriotically blind uh, right as well. How would you respond to that? And, and how would you, I think maybe more importantly, how do, you, how do we create like, okay, that's, that's 1860. That's, that's not 2018. Well, look, I'll tell you how I responded to it. I wrote a book. Uh, that, that was that was the first thing. <laughs> that was one of the ones you got tired of answering. <laughs> Boy, howdy! Uh, you know, I actually I actually titled the chapter in the book Project Fear because it, it it is so reminiscent of those negative campaigns in the Scottish referendum and the Brexit referendum, that, that, and that's what they were called was Project Fear, and that's what this is. And you know, look, here's the, here's the bottom line. Uh, you know, I woke up this morning, my calendar said 2018. It didn't say 1861, right? There's been a lot of things that happen. And, and while these progressives talk about how progressive they are, they are the ones who are absolutely stuck in the past. And, and while they are the ones who value allegedly academia and education and knowledge and information, they're the ones who remain ignorant of the last 150 years of history, right? So, you know, you, you look at you look at the first part about well, it happened in 1861 and it was treason. Well, that's interesting because Jefferson Davis, if anyone would have ever been charged with treason and hung, it would have been Jefferson Davis, and he walked scot free. Okay, so there there were no charges of treason. The second part of that is uh, treason is is very well defined in the United States Constitution. I mean, it is it is a defined crime, and an expression of political will like we're talking about here in Texas, does not constitute treason. Uh, what it constitutes is a an understanding of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution and an acknowledgment of a fundamental right that existed within the colonies when they broke from Great Britain and within each and every single state that is articulated in Article One, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution that gives our people the right to reform, alter, or abolish our form of government in such manner as we may think expedient. Now, if, if someone thinks that that's archaic, I, I'm sorry, but if you, you know, for, for those progressives out there who think that's just somehow archaic, I think it's ironic that they're the ones that are bringing up uh, a, a war from the 19th century to justify why every state should be subordinated and subservient to a federal super state. Well, and so part of my view of this is, and this is something I don't think we learn in school, and we probably should, is that the Constitution of the United States is often referred to as a contract, and I agree with that. Uh, but a contract can only be executed by parties that exist at the time of its execution, and then parties can enter that contract with the approval of other parties in that contract later. So I think one of the most ironic things that no one seems to know that should be self-evident is the federal government isn't even party to the contract that is the Constitution because they cannot be party to that contract. And the reason they cannot be party to that contract is it created them. So if you and me and two other guys decide we're going to start up, uh, I don't know, uh, Widgets LLC in the state of Texas, and we put together Articles of Incorporation that forms that LLC, the company itself is not party to the contract. The four of us are. And if we bring in partners later, you know, we'll call them Johnny Texas and uh, you know, uh, Billy Montana, uh, those guys then become party to the contract. And the contract is between those members. And we might set up something like a board of directors that none of us are even are on or hire a CEO or somebody like that and empower them to do certain things. But the ability to alter that contract and to change the terms of that contract or the procedures by which to exit that contract are in the contract themselves and between the parties 
that entered the contract either at the time it was executed or later through some approved process. So the power of that creation always lied in the hands of those who executed the contract, and therefore the power to dissolve also lies in the hands of those parties. And, and I find it completely ironic that one of the most basic concepts to our Constitution would be, well, who are the parties of the contract? And to not teach people the federal government cannot, by any legal definition, have been party to it is, is kind of insane on its face. Absolutely. Look, one of the things that I, I mean, I think I dedicate almost a third of the book to explaining what the union is and the relationship among the states because it's, you know, th there are so many folks out there who, who do not understand the fundamental construction of the union. I mean, through, you know, at this point, generations of, of conditioning, uh, we have, have learned, we have begun to interchange the terms nation, state, and, and country, you know, and, and those actually are, have very specific definitions and have very specific legal weight. And, and they also have a, a very specific, uh, uh, they are a, a specific channel to understanding the construction of the union. You know, it's like, uh, you know, there are people that believe that the United States of America is a nation. And, and I, I go in and I use the words of the founders themselves to articulate what the position of the founders and the framers were. And it is that the, the, the United States of America, the Constitution, did not create a nation. I mean, they, they were very specific. Madison even said that the Constitution did not uh, create a national government. It created a federal government. And, and those are two completely different things. So, you know, you, when you talk about this construction of the union, I, I think a lot of the thought from an international law standpoint, because there's been a, a lot in the, in the 20th, second half of the 20th century, early part of the 21st century, uh, there's been a lot of thought from an international law perspective on the relationship of, of states within these larger political bodies, right? Uh, whether it be the United Nations, Canada, the United States, the European Union, there's been a lot of thought about that from a, an international law perspective. And so, you know, one of the things that's beginning to shift now is this understanding that not all separations are secession, right? Mm -hmm. There, there's, there's this, uh, as a matter of fact, I quote, uh, Dr. Josette Bear in the book where she's really discussing these degrees of, of what secession really is. And in, in her, in her, uh, a paper that she submitted that I thought was ag actually kind of dry, but very phenomenal. If you re read between the lines, uh, she talks about a, a state withdrawing from a union like Texas withdrawing from this union. Uh, it should not really be considered secession. It should be essentially withdrawing membership. Um, and, and that gets down to really how people view what the union is. If people have a, a miss, a, a skewed perspective or a, a misconception about what the union really is, where there's a federal government that is the absolute sovereign and we all operate as administrative subdivisions as states, then they are likely to, to be fairly opposed to Texas or at least not understand how it could work. But if, if, if people understand at a very fundamental level what the Constitution is and what the union is, then Texas not only makes sense, it's, it's a moral obligation for us to pursue our independence and self-government. So let's, let's talk for a minute. You kind of alluded to this earlier when you were saying to the people that are opposed to this, if we were not 
if we were Texas as an independent republic today, and the United States of America came to us and said, hey, y'all are right there, uh, we kind of think it's a good idea for you to join us, and made a case to us, they wouldn't have a lot to present. Let's flip that on its head. Can you talk about how Texas is negatively impacted by being part of the union today? Man, if only someone had written a book about that, right? <laughs> See, now, now, hold on. You're like the worst promoting author ever. And yeah. the name of the book is? Yeah, I know, right? Texit, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union. All right. So I'm going to no. coach you before we go on here. From now no, no. on, from now on, when you're on any media appearance, right? So oh. He says, well, you know, tell us about this. Well, if you read the book that I wrote, I know, but it's such a mouthful, right? And, and, and we already, you know, we already kind of talked about my motivations for writing this book were yeah. an incipient form of laziness. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, look, here's what, um, here's, here's what it boils down to. You know, if, if you want to get it down, I get asked this a lot about what the motivations are that I've heard from Texans over the last 20 years. And, and really and truly, if you want to get down to brass tacks, it's that Texans are sick and tired of living under 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations administered by two and a half million unelected bureaucrats. Texans believe that the best people to govern Texas are Texans. But if you want to get down into some, some real specific pocketbook issues, you got to look at the fact that Texas just about every year overpays anywhere from 100 to 160 billion dollars into the federal system that's money that goes out of our pockets and into the federal coffers that we never see again okay and that's and that's taking the entire sum total of all the federal money that comes back into Texas from all sources right so we're overpaying it's it, it literally is the same economic effect of a Hurricane Harvey hitting Texas every nine months. I mean, that's when you think about when you think about the economic impact of that. I mean, that's massive. But then you've got uh, another pocketbook issue. I mean, if if people think that's bad, uh, w- there's a study that I talk about in Texas why and how Texas will leave the union. Uh, <laughs> Very that, uh, good. Yeah, that was done, that was done at George Mason University from the Mercatus Center. And, and what's interesting about that study is they went in to study the effect of federal regulatory accumulation. Okay. Now, essentially what that is, is the federal government comes in, they slap on a regulation, and then without repealing that regulation, they heap another regulation on top of it. So you get these layers and layers of regulations. Okay. So they, they went back to 1949, which was when really federal overregulation and accumulation began to really get some traction. So they went back to 1949. And so they studied the effect of all of those regulations that have been piled on us since then. And this is what they found. At the time of the release of the study, the average median household income was about $52,000 a year. Okay. The, the, the study found that if we were not subjected to that federal regulatory accumulation, the average median household income would have been about $330,000. Okay. So uh, when, when I talk about the federal government through overregulation stealing 85% of our livelihood, that's what I'm talking about. Now, in, in a separate study, what they found out, two separate studies, one thing they found out was that Texas is disproportionately affected by the federal regulatory superstate, 
And, uh, you know, I think it was an additional almost 12 to 15 percent of effect that we got uh, from the median. And then the other part of this was the people that are even more disproportionately affected are the working poor. So just like those folks that I talked about, just like my parents that were, you know, they, they had enough to get by, but never enough to get ahead. Those are the people that are affected disproportionately and the most by what the federal government does. And, and look, that's just the pocketbook stuff, Jack. I mean, you know, do, do we need to get into into how the federal government has failed miserably on the issues of immigration and the border? Consistently over the last decade, Texans have cited immigration and the border as their number one concern. Number one, okay, trumping national security, every other issue has been trumped in polling by immigration and the border. Okay, so when you look at that, you realize that the, the failure of the federal government to, to deal with the immigration situation and specifically the border costs Texas taxpayers about every year about $12 billion dollars. Okay. So that's more money that comes out of our pocket. So now we're, you know, teetering between 100 to 160 billion plus the, you know, the 85% bite out of our take home pay. Plus, you know, now you get into the, the 12 billion plus that we're having to spend as Texans, uh, for <clears throat> additional taxes that we're having to pay here to plug the holes or to deal with the strain of a, of a broken immigration system and a porous border. And then you move on in, into these other issues and, and you find out that, you know, Texas is getting a raw deal here. No, I, I have a hard time making a case against that. I think that, like, immigration is one of those things that's become a hot-button issue right now. And I think that the nation as a whole has no understanding of the average Texan's position on it. And they see us as a bunch of backwoods idiots down here that want to, you know, run every uh, Hispanic person back across the Mexican border. And, and I don't think that's the issue. I think you and I can both agree. You could drive down most roads in major cities here, find yourself a racetrack gas station or something like that, and you'll see a whole bunch of guys standing there. Most of them will be Hispanic waiting for somebody to come pick them up and give them a job for the day. And, and I've never seen anybody in the state of Texas give those people a hard time at all or out there picketing them or bothering them or insulting them or anything like that. So it's almost like we don't really worry about all those you know, little angels they talk about that come here to do a job. It's almost like we worry about the people that come here and either, one, do harm to others, or two, become parasites of the system that mostly is created by the federal government. And it's almost like if Texas was its own place, we would probably have some kind of sane and reasonable policy for people that wanted to come here and do work or come here and be part of what we're doing, but we'd also kind of want to make sure they're not like, you know, trafficking little children into sex rings or, you know, providing uh, manpower for, for street gangs. It, it, it's almost like we're not a bunch of racist, you know, anti-immigrants. It's, it's almost like we're just people that are concerned about our communities. Yeah, it's, I mean, and that's the bottom line. Look, there, there's some real practical aspects of this, you know, whether it be infrastructure and planning. Uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that because the federal government has mismanaged the immigration system, you know, they've, they've issued out their, oh, come all you faithful doctrine from the Democratic Party. <clears throat> you know, it, what, what they, what they don't account for is the enormous strain on infrastructure. Uh, they, you know, and that's, that's part of it. I think that of that 12 mil, uh, 12 billion dollars in immigration cost, I think there is perhaps an additional 9 billion that goes straight to additional education costs because we have to 
by by federal edict, we have to educate children regardless of their immigration status. We can't even ask it. There was a Supreme Court case called Plyler v. Doe that, that dealt with <clears throat> charging tuition to recoup costs for that sort of thing, and the Supreme Court shot it down. But, but the, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, wh- where Texans are concerned, they don't understand the issue because they don't, pr- they don't generally have to deal with it in the same way that we do. Um, you know, we have, we, we want a strong border, but we also want a sane immigration system. And, you know, you, you, you hear the arguments from the opposition where they, you know, they froth all over this issue of these 2000 migrant children going on right now. But that's a Johnny come lately thing, right? That's manufactured outrage for something that's been going on for quite some time. And, and they never provide the, they never provide the, the actual rationale for why that's a bad thing. You know, I, someone, someone wants to come in my house that they better ring the doorbell or knock on the door. And then I'm going to look to see who it is. And, and I'm going to open the door. I'm going to talk to them. And if I want to invite them in, I invite them in. That's, that's the way this process should work. And that's the way that it did work. Look, my, my grandmother on my father's side, her family came here from Greece. Uh, and they had to go through that system. Uh, my, my wife's aunt was one of the first Vietnamese refugees from the, the Vietnam, from the fall of Saigon, the Vietnam War. She was one of the first ones here in Southeast Texas. And, uh, you know, she had to go through a process. Um, you know, after, after watching her parents be murdered by the communists, she was obviously a political refugee. Um, but she had to go through a process. They had to make sure she was who she said she was. And, and, and it was not an easy free pass that just said, everyone, come on. Now, Jack, here, here's the thing that, that I think it's important for people to understand. And it's this, <clears throat> the issue of unrestricted migration has has been a major driving force in it was you know based on the polling uh you saw that it really propelled the UK to vote for Brexit mm-hmm. uh you've seen the the issue of unrestricted mass migration uh prop up pop up in in Hungary and Poland and many other European Union countries in relation to their potential for pulling out of the European Union Unrestricted mass migration enticed and encouraged by the federal government is definitely going to be one of the driving factors in in, in support for Texas leaving the union. Uh, the people of Texas want to see something done about it, and the federal government is, is refusing. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, they're really encouraging the problem. No, they're definitely encouraging the problem. Even, you know, we hear about how they're trying to fix this. And, and, and I was watching as our uh, congressional clowns on the right that have both the, both the Senate and the House right now can't come up with a solution. Right? They, they, they told us for years, give us, give us, you know, give us the presidency and both, both the houses of Congress and we'll, we'll fix this. And they couldn't come up with anything. And a couple of the standouts that I was wondering why they're standing out, and usually I'd, don't care what these people have to say, honestly. But it was interesting enough to pay attention. And quite a few of the holdouts in voting for one of their proposed solutions was, well, they and I can't think of what it's called now. The word just flew out of my head. But uh, the the e-verify, they won't they won't include e-verify to make employers verify people. And it wouldn't cost any money to set up. Right now, there's an app for your iPhone, and I can e-verify you in about five minutes with my iPhone. 
And they won't even require, this is the Republicans, will not require E-Verify for private employers. It's already in place for government employers and for groups to do certain work for the government. But they won't require, let's say, Joe Blow's tires to use this E-Verify. And if you won't do that, now you can, you can come down on a completely different side of this issue. And you, know, you can present that to me. But if you claim to want to stop this and you won't do that, you don't want to stop this. Yeah, and, you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not yeah. saying we should or we shouldn't. I'm not giving my view on this. I'm giving my analysis that if you won't do E-Verify and you say you want to put an end to illegal immigration, you're full of shit. Hey, bo- look, bo- bottom line, federal policy is always one size fits none. I mean, that's the, bo- that's the bottom line. And, and you know, to, to circle it back around to, uh, the, the issue of, of Texit and the book Texit, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union. Um, you know, the, the, the question really Texans should be asking themselves now is who do you trust to better manage the border and immigration into Texas? Is it Texans or is it two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. who don't understand what the challenges are here and really don't frankly care about you? No, I, I agree with that. So let's talk a bit about legality. We already discussed it's not treasonous. But is it is it legal? And, and just because something's not illegal doesn't miss. And what I mean by legal is it is it doable under legal structure? Like, you know, the people in the U.K. voted for, for Brexit. And, uh, well, they're not exactly doing it. Well, there's there's some constraints there. Yeah. I mean, they they have Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty that they had to trigger, which set the the two year time frame for which they would no longer be members of the EU. And and there's a lot of negotiations going on right now about what their post Brexit relationship with the EU will be. Um, but but to your to your point about what is the legality of it, you know, and I, I think part of that also deals with process, but. But here's, here's the bottom line. The, the first thing people need to understand is that there is nothing illegal or unconstitutional about any state leaving the union. Okay. Uh, the United States Constitution is silent on the issue. As a matter of fact, in Article one of the Constitution, uh, there's an entire list of things that states are forbidden from doing. Leaving isn't one of those. Okay. <laughs> so, so the, the Constitution's silent on it, as is federal law. There's no federal statute that prevents a state from doing this. So then you have to look at what the Tenth Amendment says, which says that anything, any powers not granted to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. So what that tells us is it's a big bright arrow pointing toward what does Texas law say about it? Okay. And, and, you know, there, there is some, some information about that. Article one, section one of the Texas constitution says that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states. Okay. So article one, section one is, is very, very clear about what continues to, you know, as long as local, the right of local self-government is unimpaired, then we will stay in the union. Okay. Article one, section two says, that all political powers inherent in the people, all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, and the people have, at all times, the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay, so so now that we've got the federal government out of the picture, Texas, the Texas Constitution is very clear on this issue, and it is a reserved right to the people in, in whatever manner we may think expedient. 
Now, lest anyone think that this is some sort of, you know, an anachronism, you know, some archaic uh, clause from the 1830s, it's not. This is a post-Civil War constitution. And, you know, to give you a contrast, if you look at the state constitution of the state of Nevada, they and their constitution explicitly prohibit themselves from ever leaving the union. So there, there's a contrast, right? So, you know, for us, what that does is it, it, it establishes a clear path, which means that we have to utilize whatever legal structures we currently have in place here to get this done. And that means that in the absence of, of a state statute on the books that details how to do this, we have to have legislation calling for a vote and, and talking about essentially how to govern it. One of the things I include in the book is uh, draft legislation, uh, like the, the the very wording. Literally, they could rip the pages out and go file it tomorrow uh, or, well, technically in November when early filing for the next session starts. But, I mean, it's it's definitely ready to file right now. So, I mean... One of the things I take out of that that's, that's actually really interesting is the Texas Constitution gives the people of Texas not only the power to dissolve the relationship with the Union, but if we wanted to, by some means, through the legal procedures that are there, to dissolve the government of the state of Texas as a whole and completely reconstitute it as something new, which in essence is what you would be doing because you would be dissolving the state legislature and re replacing it with what would become then a a national legislature. You, you actually wouldn't have to do that. Okay. Um, basically, all you would need is a piece of legislation where you change the names of the offices. I mean, and, and you wouldn't even need to do that. I mean, there's there's no there's no law or rule written anywhere that says that you have to call your body of representatives a certain thing if you have a certain status i mean it could literally still be called a legislature i mean you know we could we could call it we could rename it a congress i mean you you can retitle all those things essentially by renaming them you know you could one of the things i talk about in the book because there there's this misconception that's floating around uh, and has been for years that says that well We have to have a constitution. You know, we're going to have to do a brand new constitution and that'll take years or, you know, the, the, there's, you know, all these hoops that Fre people freaking think. Freaking Iraq to did it in two years, right? So right. even if we did, like, I think we can pull it off a little quicker than war torn Iraq. Well, the, the beautiful right. part about this is, is that we are already, according to, according to the structure of the union, we are already a free and independent state, Correct. right? Article one, section one. So, That already exists. Our our Constitution is one of a Republican form of government. So, I mean, if you want to talk about the easiest of transitions, here, here's what you do. Uh, number one, you, you uh, introduce a constitutional amendment changing the names of the various offices. So if you wanted a president instead of a governor or lieutenant governor, You just you, you you know you want to change the name of the legislature to a Congress. Sure. Uh, you, you introduce a constitutional amendment that does those things. And honestly, we could still do them this side of leaving the union if we wanted to. Sure. I mean, if we really wanted to send a clear message, we 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 could say, okay, great, we're going to pass a constitutional amendment. We're going to change governor to president, lieutenant governor to vice president, right. legislature to Congress, and we're going to officially change our name to the Republic of Texas. I mean, that that would send a clear message. So. There are those things that you can do, but really in the transition period, post-Texit, one of the things that, that has to happen is we have to augment our current state government structure with 
administrative, uh, administrative bodies or administrative departments that take care of functions that are common and usual to self-governing nation states. A good example of that would be Secretary of State. Right now here in Texas, Secretary of State handles business filings and voter registrations, right? Certification of elections and things of that nature. But traditionally speaking, a Secretary of State, if you want to call it that, in, in the way that we're accustomed to understanding things, deals with foreign relations, right? They deal with embassies, consulates, uh, ingress, egress, passports, things of that nature. Well, that's a matter of, of, Again, a constitutional amendment, adding those functions to the Secretary of State or creating a new office that deals specifically with foreign issues. So sure. a lot of these issues, and I detail all of them in the book, uh, about you know all of the different ways that we, that we can act e- either right now or post-Texit that address those things without having to reinvent the wheel. So... If someone said to you right now, how likely is this to happen? Because there's been a variety of movements for this within our state, and some of them appear to have their, their stuff together. Y'all do. And then some of them are like, wow, these are three guys in a trailer with a bunch of guns. I don't think that's going to work. So, like, with this movement, with what you're working on, with the momentum that you have, how likely do you th- think that, that people that are alive today are likely to ever see this in their lifetimes? Well, I think when you couple uh, all that we've talked about and uh, especially the growth of support and how the federal government continues to alienate the populace of Texas and how it becomes more clear by the day that Texas would be better off, you, you arrive at why I titled the book the way that I did. I mean, it's why and how Texas will leave the union, not might leave, could leave, but how it will. Um and and there are a lot of reasons beyond that, but but I'll tell you this: it's important for people to understand self-government and this reclamation of self-government is the trend. You know, the opposition would love you to believe that globalism and Lincoln pinkies and singing kumbaya is is really kind of the the way that things go, but that's not the case at all. At the end of World War II, there were 54 recognized countries around the world, and at, and by the end of the 20th century, there were 192. Now we're topping out at anywhere from, depending on your definitions, between 195 and, and uh, 200, okay? So the the fact of the matter is is that all of these trends globally point toward this reclamation of self-government, this, this expression of self-determination. <clears throat> so, you know, while Texas has its own specific set of circumstances here, it really is part of a much longer and much bigger trend that is going on on a global scale where people are saying, look, we believe that the best people to govern us happen to be us. Gotcha. Um, so what, like, so when people from other states, cause I have, you know, a couple hundred thousand people almost a day listen to this and a lot of them are from Texas. A lot of them are from around the world. A lot of them from other states. What should they get from your message, your book, this movement? What does it mean to them? You know, and, and I mentioned this at the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, how, how I really wrote this to make this topic accessible to them. And while Texans love to think of ourselves as unique, and, and we are, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the grievances that we have with the federal government are shared uh, among many of the states, uh, each with their own sort of flavor, their own you know, their own kind of um, specific grievances within the, the scope of the whole. But ultimately, 
what, what I think is going to be important here is that everyone in every state needs to be having a conversation about whether or not their needs, their challenges, their hopes are being served by being part of this political and economic union. You know, let's, let's take, let's not romanticize what the federal government is, right? Let's not romanticize. Let's not make it something that it's not. Let's look at it as it is. And it is a political and economic union with a smattering of mutual defense in it. And, and we have to ask ourselves in any state of the union right now is that are they, are the best interests of our people served by continuing to be, to, to, by continuing to be a participating member in that, that union. And I think it's going to be hard pressed for people to answer yes on that. Because the alternative is this. If, if other states make the decision, just like Texas, that, that they leave the union, that doesn't mean that we don't trade with one another. It doesn't mean that we don't travel with one another. It means that we don't, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't defend one another. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, suddenly we can't go visit our cousin in, you know, Oklahoma, even though Oklahoma is the largest county in Texas. That's another story. <laughs> but, but, no, you know. No, those, they, no, no, no. Anybody that makes you sell 3-2 beer at the convenience store doesn't get to claim to be part of Texas. <laughs> well, you know, Oklahoma, let, let me tell you, post-Texas, Oklahoma may may wish to join Texas as the largest county just simply for the fact that they can get better beer. But that's that, another story. That might story. be true. Um, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is you look around the world and you see independent self-governing nation states that are able to do those things with one another all the time. All the time. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, take a look at the United States. I mean, it's, it's, it's an example of how this works. The United States is part of a mutual defense agreement with all the nations of Western Europe and now increasingly East Europe. Um, but no one would say that just because they're part of NATO, they should be part of the political and economic union. You know, let's look at free trade. You know, let's look at, at, at free trade and let's look at, um, you know, how the United States has free trade agreements with 22 other countries that are self-governing, independent nation states. No one would ever step up and say, well, because we don't have to pay tariffs and we have free trade agreements that they should be or are part of a complete political and economic union. So there is something on the other side of this that I, I believe that is more akin to what the vision of the founders and the framers of the Constitution was, because God knows that what we've got now is so far removed from it as to be completely unrecognizable. Well, I'm glad you went there because I have a whole bunch of notes here toward the end, and this is exactly where I wanted to go with because these are things that, like, and understand, I don't think if Texas is to become an independent nation, we need a perfect answer to all these questions before we do it. Some things get figured out as you go. But there are some issues that, you know, a lot of times when I talk about people that just kind of jump on board without really thinking it through, maybe don't have an answer for. So one would be, for instance, I used to own a property in Arkansas. Now, assuming Arkansas didn't want to come along as the second largest county in the state of Texas, <laughs> um, and, and assuming I had still owned that property, and let's say the United States lets this happen, but they're not too happy about it, you know, how does that affect me as a property owner of, of, of a, a place in the United States now, and a, and a and a now a citizen of the Republic of Texas? How would things like that be handled? Well, there, there are no federal laws on the books. 
outlawing foreign ownership of private property. Okay. I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest. So there's there's nothing on the books right now, nor is there likely ever to be, because I mean, let's be honest. The federal government is is absolutely busy trying to convince uh, convince foreign countries to invest in the United States, and they're you know, they're busy selling things off. So. You know, the, so the, the likely, so literally there's probably going to see no change in that regard. I mean, you're, you're probably paying taxes on that property in Arkansas now or whatever their laws are. Mm-hmm. If Arkansas decides to stay, it's going to be essentially the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and unless, like I said, the, the union's pissed and, you know, bars me from traveling to my property or something like that. And I, I think that's a, if they're not happy about this, but they let it go through, those types of things may be things that we have to deal with. I mean, the other thing you mentioned was travel or uh, corporate ownership. So I own a company with uh, headquarters in Texas, and then I have uh, places I do business throughout the country. We are the, as far as I know, Texas is the largest state for major U.S. corporation headquarters in the country for good reason. You know, how do we deal with that if this goes through? I'll tell you what the most likely scenario is. Um, and, and honestly, you know, there's, I have to on at times divorce myself from what I would like to personally see and, and what I personally feel about it to look at what the most likely scenario is, which I cover in the book. Um, but you know, you, you take, you take something like that. And, and one of the ways that I looked at it specifically was, was dealing with banks. And I looked at the, the federal regulations dealing with foreign banks. And foreign banks, even some of the most well-known sort of household brands uh, for these retail banks, are completely foreign-owned, right? So if, in a worst-case scenario, uh, if the federal government wanted to make it difficult, they would have to make it difficult for every foreign business operating mm-hmm. on the soil of the United States. So, you know, the, not, not really being able to, without specifically sanctioning taxes, which would probably create a whole other backlash given the amount of, uh, you know, the, the amount of products that we ship into the rest of the United States. But, you know, that, that being said, what the most likely scenario to happen is, is that on the other side of Texas, we will wind up with some sort of free trade uh, arrangement with the rest of the United States. Uh, very likely, very likely with some synchronization of, of laws relating to corporations. Um, operating on the soil of both and things of that nature, but probably not that different of an arrangement that we have right now. That is, given given the history of the way these things have played out over the last 70-plus years, that is the most likely scenario, is that there will be some sort of trade agreement that covers that on the backside of this. So, and again, I just think it's interesting to think about these things, so trying to think about the more complicated things is, is interesting, because if you can answer those, the simple ones get real simple. Uh, right. Military assets. So we that kind of breaks down into different categories. We have the Texas National Guard, the Air National Guard, etc. We have the reserves, which are kind of a hybrid between the two. Uh, and it would seem that, you know, Texas National Guard assets would become Texas National Defense assets, I guess would be the way that. But, you know, we have installations like, let's say, Fort Hood, uh, the Army, United States Army owns. Uh, we have installations like Fort Sam Houston. Uh, the land clearly lies within the borders of the state of Texas. Do we say, hey, here's your, here's your F-16s, here's your, you know, Brad, how, how does that get worked out? Obviously, we have soldiers here stationed in those military installations that would now be 
residents of the United States that we're no longer part of? Like, how would we handle something like that? Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there are a lot of issues. Matter of fact, I, I, I talk about that in two, actually two different spots in the book. Um, and, and I go into some of the aspects of it with some detail. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we have the Texas military department here. So we have a, a beginning framework for a, a military and a national defense. Um, but those are, there's going to be some thorny issues. You know, I don't, I don't pretend that this is going to be a utopia. Mm-hmm. There are going to have to be some issues, but I think it's important for us to come to some real clear understandings from the jump. If the people of Texas vote to leave the union, uh, we're going to have, there's going to be some horse trading. There's going to be some negotiation and, and we're going to have to sit across the table with our counterparts from the, from the federal side and we're going to have to work some of these issues out. One of those issues is going to be the disposition of, of troops from Texas within the United States military, uh, in addition to these, these federal military bases. So there, there is a scenario. There, there are some, some likely ways that this turns out. And then there's some definitely some beneficial ways. But th- the understanding here is, is that just because we cease to be part of a political and economic union doesn't mean that we don't share common national security concerns. You know, just like the United States is, is part of NATO, all of those countries have agreed that they share common defense concerns. So on the other side of this, what makes sense for both parties is a mutual defense agreement. Now, as part of that mutual defense agreement, obviously Texas will have to take on its share of, of its national defense concerns, right? We're, we're going to have to pay money in, but even at NATO funding, minimum funding levels of, of 2% of GDP, we still come out to have the 10th most, uh, well-funded military in the world. Okay. Hmm. So that's, that's a, that's a good thing for us. But beyond that, we have to look at it from the, the standpoint of how these military bases are disposed of. What is the most likely to happen is, is that the United States military will continue to keep its assets there. Uh, Texas will work with them and they will operate as joint military bases because, again, as I said, just because we're not in a political e- and economic union doesn't mean that we still don't have these common defense concerns. Sure. I mean, we have military bases in Germany. Right. It's and not no, like you can't have a U.S. military base in another. We have them in Japan. We have them in South Korea. We, you know. It's not like we can't do that, right? And and look, even if even if on the the other side of this, um, you know, the the United States, the United States wants to, you know, wants to still, even if Texas does poorly at the negotiating table, and as part of the mutual defense, we just have to agree to continue to participate in the United States military. There's actually precedent for that. There, uh, the United States, uh, the the federal law actually allows non-citizens from certain countries to enlist and serve in the United States armed forces. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that is a non-unique situation. Uh, there are precedents and, and I'll tell you, Jack, here's the beautiful part about it. Uh, so many of the questions and concerns that people have about Texas leaving the union, uh, are are answered by literally just looking around the world at how these things have either been handled in the past or are currently being handled. And, and the, the military situation is one of them. You cited an example how the United States military has bases in other countries, but no one wants to say that you must be part of a complete and total political and economic union to have to have 
common defense concerns with the United States. I mean, that's just not the way things work. Because what we're talking about is as friendly as possible an exit. It, 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 kind of flipping it around and making a little bit of a reverse analogy. Let's imagine, you know, you and I had a big old house together, and then we had some other people in the family living with us that were not doing their fair share. Well, if we say you got to leave, it doesn't mean we don't want to talk to you anymore. It don't mean we're not friends with you anymore. It's just kind of like, we're going to run our household this way, and y'all are going to go run your household y'all's way, and you're going to pay your own way, and we're not going to pay for you anymore. It, it really is what it boils down to. I mean, if you wanted to get to just distill this down to its essence across all of these issues, it, it really gets down to the question of who do you believe can handle our business better, us or the two and a half million unelected bureaucrats? You know, for me, and, and Jack, because I've done this for so long, you know, a lot of those answers and, and uh, come to me just so naturally because I've absorbed them through observation. You know, it's like, you know, people say, well, how am I going to travel from here to, you know, whatever state of the United States? It's like, well, you know, you ever, you ever looked at how other countries do that? I mean, that stuff happens all the time. Have you ever gone to Canada? Well, look, there are one million. <laughs> you know? Listen to this. There are one million legal border crossings between the United States and Mexico every single solitary day that are done with nothing more than a border transfer card, right? No passport, no TSA sniffing up your backside to see if you got a bomb, but literally one million a day with just a card. Okay. Mm. So if, if it can be done that way, then all of a sudden, what's the big deal, right? Uh, you know, how, how do, how do you handle passports? Well, the same way that other countries do. Well, how do you handle currency? The same way other countries do. I mean, there's, there are plenty of examples out there where this happens and has worked successfully. Well, it's, it's been done so many times. I think earlier you mentioned a number of countries that were in the world compared to the number of countries that are in the world. So I bring these up so they can be discussed and understood. Again, a little bit of devil's advocate because. Yeah. What you're saying when somebody says that, and they say it not as a, dis a, a point of discussion, rather it is an objection, and you know, trying to be like, well, that's why we can't do it. Well, <laughs> if if freaking the Ukraine, which is where my family's from, can figure out how to set up a country after the Soviet Union falls apart, I, I think Texas can. I think we're a little bit more technologically advanced, a little bit more research uh, resource uh, possessing. I think that's one of the things that makes this actually really doable is there are states that I believe would have a difficult time if they decided to do this alone. They might have to reach out to a couple, you know, bordering states or a regional thing to be able to pull it off because I don't know that they have the resources to be able to stand as a sovereign nation. Texas, on the other hand, we produce more wind energy than any other state in the union. We have oil and gas resources beyond what we would need independently. We have our own electrical grid. We have seaports. Uh, we have some incredible agricultural land. And I don't think that any nation in our modern day really needs to be an island. I don't think it's you know best to go to, you know let's say, 1880s Japan model. <laughs> But... What thou does not have, they, thou may trade for, assuming that you have enough resources and surplus to do that with. And I, when I look at the state of Texas, I, I don't see a resource deficiency in any way, shape, or form. 
No, look, it's, you know, there, there is again, one of those misconceptions out there that Texas leaves the union and all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, it's North Korea, you know, it's bordered off. And I have to remind people, Hey, look, even China trades with North Korea, right? So, I mean, so there's somebody for everybody, right? But, but it's, it's really not the measure of success. The measure of success is, you know, are, are you viable? As an independent nation, you know, do you have the ability to reach out to the world and trade for goods or services? I mean, you know, you look at, at the UK and I, I think well over half of their industries are service based industries. Uh, you know, you look at some of the smaller countries around the world that have very small populations or you look at a, a city state, right? Like Singapore and, and you realize that, that, uh, you know, for it, what it really takes is not this idea that you have to be completely self-sustaining, but do you have a, do you have a stable regulatory structure? Do you have something of value that you can produce that other people around the world want? And, and do you have a society that promotes producers? Uh, that's really what it boils down to. And, and across all measurable criteria, Texas outpaces so many self-governing independent nation states out there. The question is, why haven't we done it, and why do we continue to be part of a union that takes away from what it is that we are and do and could become? Well, and we do pay for every single thing that we do within the borders of our states, with a, depending on where you are, around an 8 to 8.5% sales tax and, and property taxes and basic commerce taxes and no income tax. We, we do that now. We know we do that because... Well, they take more out from us than they give back. So we know that we can fund this state for less than the average Texans paying right now. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at the budgetary breakdown, okay, and there's, there's actually a report on our website at, at tnm.me, uh, where we break down the, the federal overpayment. Uh, and, and what we, what we show in that report is really how how that negatively impacts what we do here in Texas. You, you have to understand, like, if you take the, the budget, if you look at the money that comes in from the federal government, uh, we understand that there, we're already taking a hundred to $160 billion a year haircut. But beyond that, what we have to realize is, is that Texas has about $120 billion biennial budget. Okay. So about half of that though is, is constitutionally mandated spending. Okay, so now now you've got another half of the budget though, where you've got this this other money that goes to certain other things, right? Well, a half of the half, so a full quarter, and sometimes even up to a third of that of the Texas budget, the revenue that comes in is redirected for the administration of federally mandated programs. So you've got the federal government that are mandating these programs; they're not fully funding them. And so the state has to administer those programs to what they call in the legislature, recapture those dollars. Well, so now you're not just talking about with Texas, you're not just talking about reclaiming that hundred to $160 billion a year. Now you're looking at another, you know, anywhere from 30 billion up to 60 billion, depending on what the percentages are uh, of revenue that stays here. You're also looking at this this idea that with the rollback of the federal regulatory state, basically uh, what would amount be tantamount to a 600% raise for every man and woman who is working here in Texas on average, well, look at what the economic impact of that is. The economic impact of that means that, you know, 
our people are going to be rich. I mean, that's the bottom line. Our, our policies work. And in the absence of, of the federal government smothering us and, and eating from our substance, you know, we're looking at becoming not just the 10th largest economy in the world, but probably up in, in, in the larger numbers, you know, probably four or five, maybe even number two. I mean, who knows? Uh, but, but we're talking about a level of prosperity here in Texas that's available to us if we just reclaim our right to make our decisions here in Texas and keep that revenue here. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely something that should be explored at a deeper level. Y'all kind of got close to getting something done with this with the Texas Republican Party, but not quite. What's kind of the next move? Well, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was an interesting story in and of itself. But if I'm being honest, that was really about proving a point uh, to the media and to the leadership of the Republican Party and especially the Republican elected officials uh, who swore up and down that we did not have the level of support for this issue that we did. And, you know, ima imagine their horror when they, you know, watched over half of the delegates of that convention stand up in favor of uh, adding a plank that called for a vote on Texas independence. So, you know, the, the, the thing for us is we are, because we have to go through this legislative path, you know, we have to get legislation filed that will call for a vote on this issue. We are, the, Texas is really intricately tied to, the legislative cycle, which, uh, you know, for those who are not aware, uh, the Texas legislature only meets for 140 days every other year. So, you know, we are, we are tied to that cycle. Now, the good part about that is, is that we're going to be heading into uh, a legislative session in January of 2019. So what we're going to do is what we've done the, the previous four cycles. We're going to continue to expand our support base inside the legislature. And, and really what we're hoping to do is see a legislator or legislators with the, the Wavos to file this legislation and get this done. Yeah. I think the other thing that, like, somehow has to happen with this for this to work, and I'm not sure, like, I'm good at seeing things, but sometimes you got to figure them out, too. Uh, I, I, I don't think this can be a Republican movement in, in the party sense. I, I don't right. think it hurts that the Republicans are more on board, but I think that, and I'm just going to take progressives and Democrats and separate them for right now. Um, if because you're if you're a full-on socialist, this would be the last thing you'd want. But there are good people in Texas that identify as Democrats, and most of them, and, and I'm not placing a judgment. I'm just saying, in reality, most of them end up being your, you know, otherwise they would be, you know, your 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 red state Democrats if they were somewhere else, right? They're they're uh, they're pro Second Amendment. They're pro-liberty, but they have a politically somewhat different view. And I think a, a significant portion of people in the United States that identify themselves as Democrats are that way. And the, 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 the national government has done a really good job of dividing people based on those labels. But if we can't make a compelling case to the average Texas Democrat, leaving out the downtown Dallas and downtown Austin liberal that's never going to listen to this, why this is good for them I don't know that we can get enough momentum. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons that those people would find this appealing if they actually thought about it. Well, they have. I mean, you know, I go back to that, that Reuters poll back in 2014. I mean, you, you got to remember 2014 was two years in Obama's second term. 
And, you know, what, what you found is you had 35% of Democrats, declared Democrats, say that they wanted Texas to leave the union. Uh, you know, the, the other figure that I think is, is even probably more important than that is the, the 50% of independent voters that believe that Texas should leave the union. And, and it's something that we've always said. Um, you know, we've, we've been accused in the past of, of really being sort of a, an auxiliary group for the Republican party. And that's, that's, that's not how we operate at all. We have said from the very beginning, this is a transpartisan issue. You know, it, it transcends political party. You know, it, the, the idea is not left versus right. You know, this Democrat versus Republican. It's really Texas versus our participation in the federal union. So, that that idea and that thought cuts across the normal party lines and it's it's one of the reasons that i think the the opposition has a real hard time understanding us and and often underestimating uh us uh and and the supporters of this issue is that they don't they can't see beyond that normal partisan divide so look you know we we've seen it our demographics the demographics of texas supporters and specifically the demographics of the people who uh, who support the Texas nationalist movement are more reflective of the demographics of the population of Texas than either of the major political parties. So, you know, this is really about, it's very, again, it's very similar to what we saw in the Brexit debate where you saw the, the Brexit voters were the people who were sick and tired of having their laws dictated out of Brussels. Uh, you know, it was a combination of disgruntled conservatives, old labor, which is very similar to the situation that we see here that we're all, you know, they, they, it, it is for all intents and purposes, uh, probably the most transpartisan issue that we're going to have. And, and as we have seen historically, when these votes happen, uh, people don't vote along those party lines. Okay, man. Well, I, I appreciate it. You want to tell everybody, uh, I think you got a few websites there that you want to rattle <laughs> off. And once again, the name of that book they can check out. Yeah, yeah. The book is called uh, Texit, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union. And uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or straight from the publisher at defiancepress.com. And if folks want to find out more about how we're implementing what's in the book and have been since 2005, they can check out the Texas Nationalist Movement's website at tnm.me. Okay, well, I'll make sure I have links to that, uh, all, all three of those websites, uh, your book, uh, all of that stuff in the show notes. And, and Daniel, I appreciate you being with us today. And, and uh, I really enjoyed having a quite intellectually stimulating conversation on this. Uh, you, you definitely have things kind of put together, the I's dotted, the T's crossed. And I think it's something people will want to know more about. So thank you for being with us today. Hey, Jack, thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it gets your mind thinking around the world of liberty. I mean, I'll say something here that I didn't bring up with Daniel because I'm not in the habit of debating my guests, and I'm really not in the habit of going down rat holes with my guests that doesn't really further the discussion. My biggest concern with Texas independence is not the devil's advocate questions I asked. I think those can all be solved. My problem is it's still a state. And it would be the state of Texas without the check and balance of the federal government against it. Uh, and, and, and maybe, not definitely, maybe more subject to the tyranny of the majority. And, and I would want to see, and this is why I started talking about the concept of level-headed, real Democrats, classic liberals, 
being brought into the movement, because I'd like to see if this is going to happen, there's several constitutional amendments to the state of Texas Constitution that I'd like to see for greater protections and greater restrictions upon the government. I mean, one of the things we need to realize when we have any discussion like this is the Constitution of the United States actually put very few restrictions on the state governments. As Daniel said, there's a list of what the states can't do. And then anything not granted as a power to the federal government is left with the states and the people. So there are certain things I'd like to see if you're going to make a state sovereign that further restrict the state government. Now, some of that's been done through what's known as the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. So a lot of people don't know this. When the Bill of Rights was put in place, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, it didn't apply to the states at all. It didn't apply. Those were 100% of the negatives, the restrictions on what government could not do, including things like the right to keep and bear arms, applied to the federal government, not to the states. And over about 120 years, they were fully incorporated to include the states underneath what's called, again, the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, and that was done by the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS. And you can look that up if you want to. Now, the, the issue then lies in some of the things that the state is prohibited from doing today are within those restrictions. And if the state became independent, those restrictions, unless they also exist in the state's constitution, do not exist at the state level. So to me, there's a lot of work to do. And when I was talking about and again, I didn't want to go down this rat hole and put him in a defensive posture when we had such a positive thing going, because I don't mean it as a reason not to do it. But if you want to get the left, and again, not your loony left, you know, not your Bernie Sanders, I want free shit leftist, your common sense rational leftist just has a different opinion than you and I do on board with something like this, one of the ways to do it is assurances of what the government cannot do. Now, I know what you're going to say, well, they, they want the government to do this, and they want the government to do that. As much as they want the government to do things, they're also concerned about the government doing things. And, and as I've said before, the greatest way to ensure liberty is to put the most restrictions upon government possible. So I would see the opportunity to form an independent Texas or an independent Florida or an independent California or an independent New York or an independent Maine or an independent anything. It's not just an opportunity to separate yourself from the absolute abuse of people and their wealth that is the federal government, but it's an opportunity to further restrict government. I think without that, you're not really heading in the right direction because, in essence, under most state constitutions, if you remove the restrictions upon the individual state that exist at the federal level, those states would have more power than they do now and in many instances would have more power than the federal government. Here's a classic example. Right now, the states can only coin money from either gold or silver, which none of them do, really. There's some chatter and talk about Utah and stuff, but no one really does it. But when you become a sovereign nation, you would have the ability to produce your own money and thereby print money against your own debt using borrowing money against nothing to make money. Right, The whole Federal Reserve shell game would now become the venue of the state, and without something like a balanced budget amendment to the state's constitution or some amendment that at least restricts how much debt the state can carry, 
At that point, the state becomes capable of being its own banker and could end up in worse shape than the federal government's in. So I think that if you're going to have a reasonable discussion about any state's independence from the United States of America, you have to say, and what do we do to prevent Texas from becoming the exact problem we're trying to get away from? Transplant syndrome. It's questions we have all the time. What about all the people who move from Texas, from California, trying to turn it into California? Well, what if Texas leaves and turns itself into the United States and recreates all those problems by not restricting itself? An unrestricted government will do everything that it's not restricted from doing sooner or later. Just my thoughts on that as we wrap up today. With that, let's talk about our item of the day. Uh, guys, remember that one of the ways you can support this show that's painless is to do your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. tspaz.com. You go there. You see all the items I've ever reviewed. You can check out Deals of the Day on Amazon. Remember, if you see it there, that means I bought it. That means I own it. That means I use it. And if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I don't ask you to. Unless I stole it. Yeah, I'll explain that at the end. This item I do own. Well, sort of. It's here. Been here for years. And I'll explain the stolen comment in a minute. But it's, it's made by a company called Global Electric. It's a 48-watt, 360-degree work light. Now, if you guys have been to my workshops, you've seen I have two of them I set up during the workshops. They're on like a tripod. It's a red tube, and a fairly long 360-degree LED light sticks up out of that tube, and then you tighten it up, and it throws light 360 degrees. These things are awesome, and again, I'm back to they only draw 48 watts, and they throw a lot of light at 48 watts, but they throw a soft light, that means it doesn't blind you when you look at it. That's what I mean by soft. A long distance in all directions. What does that mean? It means when I set it up, unlike your typical LED work light that you can point underneath the hood of a car and you can see what you're doing there, you actually can see around the room or around the outside area. And when you turn around and look at it, again, it doesn't blind you. And with two of them set up, you know, you don't become your own shadow of darkness where, where you turn your back and now you can't see because you know what I'm talking about. And you're moving it and what have you. These things are great. And they're great just for that, for a shop work light or something like that. But they do a lot more than that. They're really a great work light for like construction sites. Or if you have a, a farmhand like I did, Cody, and I used to call it his slave light. You know, it was a joke. And he, he was not, he was bemused by that, right? But what I would mean is like in the winter, he wouldn't get here to start working until 5 o'clock, and it's dark at 6. Well, I'd have, like, mulch to be put out and stuff like that, and we'd just run an extension cord out there, and he could unload the truck or do mulch work and stuff like that, and it worked no matter where it was. Also, it's only 48 watts. And if you have, like, an open-concept house where you have, like, your kitchen, your, your dining room, and your living room kind of in a row, and you set it in the room that's in the middle, it'll probably be your dining room, and hook it up to your backup power system, you'll be able to see what you're doing in all three rooms. It throws light that good. So this is a great product for 99 bucks. Now, did I pay 99 bucks for mine? No, I kind of sort of in a way stole it, even though since I don't claim ownership of it, it's not truly stolen. My buddy David brought two of these to a workshop, and he only ever took one with him when he left. So I'm still holding on to the other one. And whenever we do another workshop, he brings his one back and then takes it away again. Uh, but so I, I put a little PS. I'm just going to read the PS to you in the, and then David's the guy that does Bill Tom for breakfast for me. PS, don't feel sorry for David. 
as he's emptied my good liquor cabinet of more than enough to cover the 99 bucks. As evidence, I present this with a link. Uh, that was a 30-year-old Tawny Port looted while I was on vacation. Yeah, and he also ran off with about eight pounds of my dry sausage and jerky and fed it to himself and his dog in Alaska. True story, we all need more friends like this. And I mean that we do all need more friends like that. Uh, it's, it's a little humor thrown in there, but if you want to see, the, it's pretty funny. It's worth looking at today's item of the day if you don't even want to. Just to click the link that says I present this, and look what David did with my expensive 30-year-old Tawny Port. It's, it's great. It was one of the best burns anybody's ever pulled on me. I was on vacation during it, and I laughed. My It was the highlight of that vacation. And those of you that keep asking him if he replaced it, good God, give that up, man. It's two guys messing with each other. Anyway, you want to help support the show? Shop at tspaz.com. Every once in a while, you'll find some of my humor mixed in with outstanding product recommendations. But no matter what you buy, you support our work as long as you go to tspaz.com first. Next up, let's talk about our song of the day. The song of the day today is one that really resonates with me. It's by Jeff Tate, who was the lead singer at Queensryche. And the song's called Dark Money. And it really fits in with today's topic of the federal government wasting their money. It's really about the money that comes into the political system through lobbying. And they call it dark money because you really don't know how much you're where. And there's just, you know, now we have all types of uh, political action committees and stuff like that that work to get people elected and buy influence. And it's almost unlimited how much money can be spent. And I think Jeff's heart is in the right place. But reading some of his thoughts and opinions, I can't help but feel that he kind of feels like it's really the Republicans with the dark money more than the Democrats. And I think this is one of the problems that we get on either side of the dichotomy. People gravitate to either that left or right side of the dichotomy, and then they do an excellent job of pointing out the hypocrisy and the evil doings of the other side. They just do a really good job of talking around the fact that their side does the same thing. This song is spot on if properly applied. To be properly applied in the world of politics, you apply it to everybody. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
president. Dark money. Use the government. Dark money. Is the way it's done. Dark money. Will determine who has won. Dark money. Everywhere you turn. Dark money. Has no concern. Dark money. And we wonder where it ends. It never ends. It never ends. It never Who has won?